The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Welcome, everybody, as we are at week 31 of our 31-week verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Mark. Congratulations. You're here tonight for the finale, the grand finale of our verse-by-verse journey. Now, we're going to pick it up in just a moment in Mark chapter 16, starting at verse 1. But let's just kind of remind ourselves again of where we've come from, where we've been in this. It's been said, and we've said all along, that if Mark was a play, it could be drawn up and divided up into three acts. And you, if you've been with us, you know what the three acts are. Act 1 is the, the theme, the title would be, Who is this man? Who is this man? That was the theme of Act 1. In other words, Jesus came on the scene and he preached and he taught and he did miraculous deeds. And people were looking at him and following him and saying, who are you? Who is this man? And uh, the end of Act 1 and really the beginning of Act... I didn't put a number there. Act 1. And then the beginning of Act 2 was in Caesarea Philippi when uh, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're right, Peter. And flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. Uh, But my my father in heaven uh, has revealed that to you. And so Jesus at that moment said, yes, that's true. I am the Messiah. But Up until that point, Jesus hadn't been accepting that title um, when the people in the public tried to to sort of pin that on him. Why? Because their concept of the Messiah was a political Messiah, a a political ruler who would come and and bring an army and take over Jerusalem and take over Israel and kick out the Romans. And Jesus didn't want that. That wasn't what the Messiah was to be. So the theme of Act 1 is, who is this man? Act 2, when Jesus says privately to the disciples, yes, you're right, I am the Messiah, then the theme is, so who is the Messiah? In other words, the theme for the next few chapters was Jesus unpacking, here's what the Messiah means. And the Messiah is not the one that you think he is. And that's where three times Jesus said to the disciples, the Son of Man, that was the title he used for himself from Daniel chapter 9 mostly. I think it's 9. Um, the, the, the Son of Man who is a, uh, uh, a heavenly figure who approaches the, the Ancient of Days, approaches the throne of God and is given all this power and glory and dominion and, and the, everyone bows down to him and worships him. Uh, it's the title Jesus preferred for himself, the Son of Man. And so he began to discuss and say, listen, here's what's going to happen to the Son of Man here, himself. Here's what's going to happen to the Messiah. I'm going to be beaten, uh, crucified, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'll rise again. He said that three times, but they just couldn't get it because that's not the Messiah. That's like saying Superman will be killed. Superman doesn't die. And so Jesus was unpacking what the Messiah is or who the Messiah is until we get to Act 3. And Act 3 was when Jesus then makes his way from the North Galilee down to Judea, down to Jerusalem, and he enters the city of Jerusalem. For the first time in Mark's gospel, the truth is Jesus would have been there many times before, but for what Mark was trying to communicate, this was the first time he mentioned 
The first time he has Jesus in Jerusalem was actually the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, if that makes sense to you. And uh, it's his last week. And so you could just call the theme of Act 3 um, the, the, the final week. And uh, that's where Jesus entered into the city triumphantly. And, um, and then he provoked the Jewish leaders and provoked the Roman leaders by saying, yes, I am the Messiah. He knew what that would mean. He knew that would mean crucifixion eventually. But Jesus was ready for that. It was all part of God's plan. And so we have just, we're coming now to the end of what happened in that final week. The last time we were together, we walked through the sober uh, experience of the trial, the death, and the burial of Jesus. And now we've come to our final class together and the story surrounding the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, you'll notice that we are only dealing with the first eight verses of Mark chapter 16. Even though many versions have traditionally had 20 verses in the final chapter. And I would encourage you to look at your, the Bible that you have right now. Does your Bible have all 20 verses or does it have verses 9 to 20 maybe in italics or at the bottom or something? How many, the Bible that you're holding right now has all, Mark 16, 1 to 20, all fully there in your Bible? How many have that? Okay, some do. And how many have a different version, maybe italicized or smaller version where it says, yeah, some do, Okay. Here's the thing. You say, so why, why is this? Why are we only doing the first eight? It's simple. Virtually all scholars, not some, not most, all scholars virtually agree that verses 9 to 20 were not part of Mark's original gospel. Those verses were added afterwards. Um, scholars are united on this for the following reasons on your outline. Number one, manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. I'll just write that one over here. Manuscript evidence. What do we mean by that? Well, verses 9 to 20 don't appear in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. So if you were with us this past Sunday, uh, when we were speaking about, is the Bible reliable? We learned that the original autographs, autographs are the term for the, the, the actual gospel that Mark wrote in his handwriting. They're called the autographs. The original autographs, we don't have anymore. They're, they're, it's an ancient document. We don't have them. Um, but what happened was Mark had his original autograph and then it was copied by people. It would be sent out and be copied by a local church and then they would copy it and then they'd send it, it on to someone else and they would copy it and that's how it got, you know, photocopied, if you will. Scribes would copy down. And then these, these manuscripts would multiply. They, then they'd be copies of copies. So I, I did, you know, here's a copy of Mark's gospel. We had it for a week and now it's up in, in Caesarea, but we got a copy down here in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, so, hey, can we borrow your copy? Yeah, because we want to make a copy of your copy. Sure, no problem. So here's a copy. And then there's a copy of a copy and a copy of a copy of a copy and so on. And so that's how these manuscripts um, spread. And the more, the better, because the more manuscripts you have, the more comparisons you can make, and you can uh, find out what was originally written. Having said that, um, we don't have the original autograph anymore. We've got early manuscripts and the earliest manuscripts, the most reliable manuscripts we have, and it tended to be the earlier the manuscript you have, the closer to the original it was, those early close reliable manuscripts do not have verses 9 to 20. The 9 to 20 verses tended to come in in later manuscripts. So somewhere in there, verses 9 to 20 got added. 
by scribes or some well-meaning person. Who knows the story why? But the earliest and most reliable manuscripts simply don't have verse 9 to 20. Now, some people could say, you know, but the Bible says in the book of Revelation, you shouldn't add or take away from the word of God. Yeah, well, first of all, that's specifically talking about the, the book of Revelation, but the principle does hold true. But it could be argued, well, this isn't taking away. By not including verses 9 to 20, we're not taking it away. We're saying we refuse to add. It was added. It's not being taken away. So that's one reason. Number two, church father's evidence. The church father's evidence. You say, who are the church fathers? These are the disciples of the disciples and the disciples of the disciples of the disciples. So John, you know, Jesus had his disciple, John, and then John had disciples. And then, so, you know, I learned from John and, and John was a disciple of Jesus. And then I'm a disciple of, and so one of John's disciples was named um, Jerome, literally. And, and, and Jerome, um, it was a disciple of John. And then I'm Jeremy, I'm a disciple of Jerome, who is a disciple of John. Well, this would be like a church fathers were these disciples of the disciples. And the church fathers, the early church fathers, did not interact with or endorse verses 9 to 20. You can't find writings of the early church fathers that are quoting verses 9 to 20 of Mark. Thirdly, literary evidence. Literary evidence. What do we mean by this? The vocabulary and the style of verses 9 to 20 is distinctively different from everything else in Mark's gospel. I think I've given you a couple examples on your outline. One example, in these simple 12 verses, 9 to 20, there are 15 words that Mark has never used before in the gospel. That's a clue to, to scholars. They look at this and say, suddenly, in the last 12 verses, Mark uses 15 words he's never used before. That's unusual. That's highly unusual. That's a, that's a sign that this is a different author. Um, another example is the connection with what precedes it is awkward. Meaning, in verses 9 to 20, Mary Magdalene is introduced like she's a new character. They tell us Mary Magdalene, who he, she was, and so on and so forth. But the truth is, she's already present in the previous episodes. Chapter 15, verse 40, verse 47, 16, verse 1. Mary's already been introduced. So why is he being introduced as though she, we didn't know who she was? Again, a sign that something's been added. Okay? So, that's why we're just dealing with the first eight. The truth is, there's nothing wrong with verses 9 to 20. There's nothing in verses 9 to 20 that isn't somewhere else in all the other Gospels. So it's just somebody's like, somebody's cut and paste and added something on because they weren't comfortable with how Mark ends. And we'll get to that in a moment as well. All right, so let's pick it up in verse 1. 16 verse 1. Uh, first of all, as your outline says, we're talking about the resurrection here. The women made preparations to finish the burial job that they had started. That's number one in your outline. The women made preparations to finish the burial job they had started. So when we left last time, Jesus had been buried, and that's how it ended. Um, let's read verse one. When the Sabbath was over, so the Sabbath began on uh, Friday evening at sundown, and it ended Saturday evening at sundown. That's how the Sabbath was measured. So, so it'd be like Friday at 8 p.m., Till Saturday, 8 p.m., that was the Sabbath. So think of it as Saturday, 8 p.m. now, and they're, and they're ready now. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. 
As your outline says, these are the same women named in 1540 and 1547. So these are the same women who were there previously. Now they've come back. Now you say to yourself, why are they having to do this? Why didn't they finish the job the first time? You know, the, the sort of the embalming process. Why, why didn't they finish it the first time? As your outline says, the soon coming Sabbath... So remember, Jesus was crucified on Friday, just before the sundown, just before the Sabbath. So the soon coming Sabbath likely prevented them from doing the quality job they desired to do. So they, they were fighting the clock here. They had to get Jesus buried and, and prepared and buried before sundown, because once sundown starts, you can't do anything. Um, to this day, the city shuts down in Jerusalem, in, in Israel. But when you're in Jerusalem, you know, the Sabbath night streets are almost empty. It's, it's, it's incredible, really. Um, so you say, well, if the Sabbath ended at sundown on Saturday, why didn't they finish the job Saturday evening? Okay, so they waited till the Sabbath. Sun, sun, the Sabbath is over. It's Saturday evening. Why are they doing this early Sunday morning? Well, as your outline says, letter C, shops reopened on Saturday at sunset so they could purchase the needed spices, but it would have been too late and too dark to visit the tomb that evening. It would have been too late and too dark to visit the tomb that evening. That's A1C on your outline. So yeah, sure, when the Sabbath ended Saturday at sundown, but the sundown, it's dusk, so they'd go to the, to the market, the market opens at sundown, they can go buy the spices and everything, but it would have been too late and too dark to go and to do this. So they go the next, first thing, Sunday morning. Like, I mean, first thing as we're going to see Sunday morning. Number two on your outline, the women make their way to the tomb. The women make their way to the tomb, verses two and three. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. So you can see that they, this is at the break of dawn. They uh, made their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Now, John 20, 21 says, while it was still dark, so it implies the crack of dawn. So it was light enough to see, but the sun still wasn't visible yet, essentially is what's happening here. Uh, on your outline, to be in their grief and fueled by their great intentions, they hadn't really thought things through. So you, you can't blame them here. In their grief, and they had great intentions, so they said, yeah, we need to go finish the job. And so they're going, they get the spices, then they get up really early Sunday morning, and they're heading to the garden tomb, and they realize, wait, how are we going to get into the body like, there's a big stone there. What are we going to do? So they hadn't really thought that through. And for all we know, they were going to maybe get someone to, uh, to, to open it for them, sort of ask somebody that they met along the way or someone who was around there. It was a, it was a busy city at this time. I'm sure they thought, they were, we'll get somebody. Someone will help us. And then number three in your outline, the women discover the empty tomb. So they think they're going to a tomb that's sealed with Jesus' body in. They think they're going to have to somehow get the stone rolled away, and they'll go and finish the job of, of wrapping and spices and so on, which was part of Jewish burial tradition. But they go and they discover an empty tomb. Look at verse 4. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Now, looked up or looking up, as your outline says, this was their moment of revelation. They looked up. It's, it's their moment of revelation here, a very symbolic phrase. 
Mentioning the size of the stone really is more of just of a, a literary device here. It, it simply heightens the drama. The stone being removed was not necessary for accomplishing the resurrection. That's the next blank. The stone being removed wasn't necessary for accomplishing the resurrection. It was necessary for providing some evidence for the resurrection. You see the difference? Jesus could have been raised from the dead, and you didn't need to move the stone away. Jesus appeared and disappeared within a room with locked doors in his resurrected body. So it's not as though the stone had to be rolled away so Jesus could exit the tomb. No, the stone didn't need to be rolled away for a resurrected body to to simply uh, be gone. But why the stone was rolled away is not to accomplish the resurrection, but to provide evidence for the resurrection. So they could look in and people could see this tomb is empty. And then number four on your outline, the angelic announcement. The angelic announcement, verses five to seven. As they entered the tomb, They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Look at that. Especially Peter. Like Peter was one of the disciples. But this was the Peter who was hidden, who was shamed, who who felt like he had disappointed Jesus. So the angel makes a specific point. Tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now this term, young man, what's this all about? As your outline says, angels with massive wings and halos is not the common biblical representation. So this concept of angels with these big wings and and a halo and so on, that's not the common biblical representation. Angels commonly appeared as humans. The most common uh, appearance of angels were they just looked like humans. And I've given you some examples there in scripture where angels were often mistaken as humans. They just thought they were humans. Okay. For, for, For all you know, you have interacted with an angel. For all you know, I'm an angel. All right, we're stretching it. But you know, it's that, it's, it's that similar. They just took on human forms. And keep in mind, angels do not have bodies. They're unembodied spirits. Okay? Uh, but they would, could take on different forms. Okay? Now, as your outline says, 4B, the clothing and the content of the message communicate an angelic source. The clothing this white, bright clothing, and the content of the message communicates an angelic source. Because this young man explains the meaning of the empty tomb, and, uh, as well as Jesus' future itinerary. So these are things that only could be revealed by God himself. So the, 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 the cues here for them is the white brightness uh, of the, the clothing, and his ability to know what's happening and to communicate on God's behalf. Literally, the word angel is angelos, which means messenger. That's what the word angel simply means messenger, courier. You could call them couriers or messengers. That's what angelos, angel, means, literally. All right. Now, by the way, Matthew is more specific, and Luke uses different language. Let's see how Matthew describes this. Matthew chapter 28 verses 2 to 3. Keep in mind, Matthew had access to Mark. Mark was the first gospel, it's believed. Matthew and Luke both had access to Mark, used it for some of their source material. 
And, but Matthew expands a bit more. He says, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. So there, Matthew gives us even more detail. He's not contradicting Mark. He, again, gospel writers chose what they would include and what they didn't. Uh, Mark was very concise with his words. It's the shortest gospel. Uh, Luke Luke 24, 4 says this, describing this moment. Uh, he's a little brief as well, I think. He says, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men, oh, we've got two men in Luke. Does that mean this is a contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction. It's just Luke's giving more information, more detail. Two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And, and this is an example of where some people would look at this and say, that, that's an error in Scripture. It's not an error in Scripture. It's simply Mark is recording and Matthew are recording specific events and different gospel writers including different levels of detail. So, you know, if you're, I worked with the police for years and was at many accident scenes and, and you could be an ac- at an accident scene and in the police report it could say, um, I spoke with three witnesses, three people who witnessed the, the event, okay? So you've got that in your report. But then when you're in court and the lawyer could say, now, I see in your report you have three witnesses, yes. So are you telling me that there are just three people who saw this? Oh, no. There's like 15 people on the street who saw this, but I have the recorded statements of three witnesses. So by saying, you know, I have the statements of three witnesses, you're not saying that those are the only three people who saw it. You're simply saying, in my recording, in my report, I'm just mentioning the stories, these three witnesses, because they were the best eyewitnesses, but there are other people there as well. And this is what's happening in the Gospels writers as well. They're simply choosing um, what they're presenting. But it's not a contradiction. It's just different levels of information. Okay? All right, let's read, reread verse 7 there for a second. Verse 7 says, But go, the angel said, Go tell his disciples and Peter, He, Jesus, is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, Jesus would make appearances in Jerusalem as well, but the angel specifically directs them to return to Galilee where they can expect to see him. Now, why would Jesus direct them to return to Galilee? I want you to take a couple minutes around your table, literally just two, three, four minutes, and discuss that around your table. Why do you think Jesus said, go into Galilee, leave Jerusalem, and walk back up to Galilee? It's not all that far. And go up there, and I'll meet you there. I'll appeal to you there. Why do you think Jesus directed them back to Galilee? Talk about that around your table for a couple minutes. All right, folks, let's come back. Now, I don't know what reasons you have around your table. Your reasons could very well be right. Scripture doesn't say why, so I'm surmising here. So whatever you came up with could be just as right. Um, First, let me say this, though. You say, when it says, you know, Why did the angel say, there you will see him just as he told you? Remember back chapter 14, verses 27, 28. Just turn left in your gospel of Mark to 14, 27, 28. Remember when Jesus was talking about and predicting the denial? He says to Peter, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Okay, so this is, Jesus had said this to them. Okay, I'm sure they forgot this. I mean, there's so much has happened in the meantime, but the angel reminds them, go up into Galilee. He told you he'd meet you up there. Go there. Why Galilee? 
couple ideas here perhaps, letter D in your outline. Jesus' Galilean resurrection appearances shows that Jerusalem is not the center of God's new movement. Jerusalem is not the center of God's new movement. This is the new covenant. This is not temple-centric. Remember, the temple is being destroyed, the curtains torn in two. This is not all about Jerusalem anymore. Um, this is, the Spirit is being poured out upon all people. So it, it's a symbol that, no, don't think everything big happens in Jerusalem. No, go back up to Galilee. Second reason, perhaps, Jesus sends the disciples back to their beginning for a fresh start. He sends them back to their beginning for a fresh start. It all started in Galilee. That's where I want you to go back to Galilee. We're going to, you got to do over here. We're going to start again. In verse 6 there, the angel said, don't be alarmed. As your outline says, that word alarmed, it means, the original meaning there, as your outline says, is an intense emotional state. The word for alarmed means an intense emotional state because of something causing great surprise or perplexity. Okay? So he says, don't be in an intense emotional state because of your surprise, you know. Just calm down, is what he's saying. And I'm sure they were in an intense emotional state. I would be, I'll tell you that much. Now, by the way, is it he is risen or he has risen? You know, often at Easter time, you'll see, it, you'll see that he is risen. And it says here in Mark, he has risen. What's it all about? Well, literally, when people say he is risen, they're literally quoting what it says in the original Greek, Okay. Literally, it's he is risen. Um, Eris passive tense in ancient Greek. If that means anything, it doesn't mean anything to me, but it sounds smart by me saying that. Um, so it's literally he is risen in the original Greek. Of course, the angel, I'm sure, spoke in Aramaic. I doubt the angel said this in Greek. Um, but it, that he is risen, the original Greek phrase literally means either it can mean one of two things. It can mean he has been raised, meaning he's been raised by God. So he has been raised by another power, or it can also mean he has risen by his own power. So it's really a perfect phrase because both are taught in the New Testament. Both of those, we, could, we don't have the time, but we could take you to many passages where it talks about the Father raised Jesus from the dead, Spirit raised him, Jesus raised himself from the dead. All of those are tr true. And if you're wondering how that can be possible, you need to be in church at one of our campuses on Sunday because we're teaching about the Trinity and how the Trinity works and makes sense, and maybe it'll be a bit of a clue in there for you. But he is risen is what it literally says, and that can be taken both ways. He's been raised by God, or he has raised himself. Both can fit into that phrase, he is risen. Now, this next point is a, a really important one. Letter G on your outline. The empty tomb alone is not proof of a resurrection. The empty tomb alone is not proof of a resurrection. There's lots of reasons to explain an empty tomb. Okay? The body was never put in there. The body was stolen, uh, for example. There's two right off the top of my head I could, could choose. So it simply invites the question, what happened? Other evidence need to be, needs to be and can be marshaled. And we're going to do that in a moment, uh, as you'll see in your outline. Okay? But in itself, an empty tomb is not proof. It's a sign of a resurrection. It's a clue. It's a symptom of a resurrection. But in itself, it's not proof. Now, the women were obviously wondering what happened here. 
And so the angel answers, as your outline says, letter H, the angel answers decisively. The angel answers decisively. He is risen. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Okay. Now, let's look at the next chunk I put on your outline here. Here is 2,000 years worth of skeptical theories. And we're going to quickly go through them. We say, you know, the tomb itself being empty is not a proof of a resurrection. And here we've touched on this in our skeptic course. We've touched on this when I've taught on the resurrection. So I'm going to move through it pretty quickly. But this is 2,000 years worth of attempted explanations. So there's the obvious explanation that the scripture gives. He's risen from the dead. Okay, I'm not sure I believe that, people say. Okay, then you need to explain uh, what happened, how that tomb got empty. Here's 2,000 years worth of skeptical theories. First one, the theft theory. The theft theory. That is the theory that the disciples came and stole the body. This was the first claim that the Jewish leaders came up with. Okay, we got to explain this somehow. So listen, they paid the, the guards at the tomb. Say the disciples came and, while we were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body. That's your, the, the claim. While we were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body. What are the problems with this theory? Well, there's a lot of them. Do you mean the same disciples who hid when Jesus was arrested and shrank from a woman's accusation around a campfire? These, these guys who were too afraid to even claim Jesus' body, these are the guys who suddenly got brave and went and stole the body? I don't think so. Um, and then come up with this resurrection story? It doesn't sound right. But plus, how can sleeping guards identify people? I'll often act this out with people. You know, what, you know show me your, the, the common state that you're in when you sleep. Are you sleep with your eyes open or closed? I've never met somebody who sleeps with their eyes open. Well, that's not true. I actually have seen <laughs> some of my kids would kind of sleep with their eyes open. But they're not seeing, if you know what I'm saying. They're in a catatonic state. They're, they're asleep somewhere. But these, the, the guard said, while we were sleeping, the disciples stole the body. How do you know what happened if you were sleeping? It's, it's irrational. It doesn't make sense. Plus, why the theft theory didn't work is, what about the resurrection appearances? Jesus, in other Gospels and in other New Testament letters, there's all sorts of resurrection appearances that he made to people, including 500 people at one time. Okay? So you have to explain that. It's, you have to explain more than the empty tomb if you're going to deny that Jesus rose from the dead. You also have to explain the empty tomb, how the tomb got empty, and you have to explain all these resurrection appearances that Jesus made to people. Okay? And does an outright lie explain the disciples' lives from that day forward? Um, many of them um, died martyrs' death. You know, I'm not sure all of them did. I don't think we have evidence for that. Uh, some claim they all did, but I'm not sure we have the historical evidence for that. But certainly many of them did. And would you die for a lie? People say, well, what about cult members or you know, people who from other religions who we, we believe what they believe is a lie and they're willing to die for that? Oh, but here's the difference. They actually believe the lie. They don't know it's a lie. They've been lied to and they're believing what people have told them. But this is different. These disciples know it's a lie. It's a lie they made up, and they're willing to die for it. And they're willing to have their families die for it as well. Peter, history tells us, died being crucified upside down. And they're saying, you know, deny Christ, deny it. And they refuse to deny. At that moment, if you knew you lied, and if you would just say, okay, oh, uncle, uncle, I, all right, I made it up. Okay, now you get to live. 
I got to say, one of them at least would have cracked under that. I, I, you have to believe that they all died for a lie. You've got to explain the resurrection appearances, and you've got to explain the empty tomb. The theft theory has not been proposed as a viable alternative for 2,000 years. Number two, the no burial theory. The no burial theory. This is the theory that uh, the body was thrown into a pit, not the tomb. It was very common in those days. Remember that the Romans crucified thousands of people. So this, this Jesus dying on a cross was just not, did not make the headlines. Jewish men, Roman men were being crucified all the time. They, there was at one point, um, was it Nero who lined the streets for miles with people on crosses? As like, it was like um, street lamps, just lined for miles. Um, so this was, this was not an uncommon thing. And so what would happen is they would take the bodies down and they would throw them in a pit. And these people say, that's what happened here. The body was thrown into a pit, not the tomb. But the women were mistaken. They went on the Sunday morning, they looked in this tomb. Oh, they thought that's where Jesus was buried and woohoo, he, he's risen from the dead. What are the problems with this theory? Um, well, a couple problems is, remember we learned last week, the women knew where the tomb was. They knew his body was placed in there. They saw it. And again, this is great, strong evidence, because for women to be the witnesses was not what you would make up. If you're going to make up a story, women could not testify in court. Jewish women could not testify in court. Their testimony meant nothing. So if you're going to make up a story, you would not have wit women as your first witnesses. You would have powerful men to be your first witnesses if you're going to make up a story. But these women were the witnesses. They saw where the, he, he was buried. So they wouldn't go to the, to a, the, the wrong place. Or, um, plus, another um, re reason why this is false is why wouldn't the Romans simply produce the real body? Oh, no, the story's going around that Jesus rose from the dead. No, 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 you've got it all wrong. Here, let's take them to the pit. There, see, there he's right there. There's his body. Oh, okay, sorry, our bad. You know, we thought we thought he'd been risen, raised from the dead. Partially, that's right. They partially prepared it. That's right. And what about the resurrection appearances? Again, this doesn't explain the resurrection appearances. Okay, so this theory was never serious consideration. Has absolutely no modern day support as a viable alternative, which leads us to the third one, which is similar in one sense. It's called the wrong tomb theory. The wrong tomb theory. The women accidentally went to the wrong tomb. You know, ladies in directions. I'm just joking, but that's, that's what this theory is. Um, what's the problem? They, 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 they went into the, to, to the, the cemetery area, and they turned right instead of left, and they went to the wrong tomb. Uh-oh. Then they saw it empty. Whoa, he's risen from the dead. Problems with this theory? Again, the women knew where the tomb was. As you said, they partially embalmed him the day before. They knew where it was, okay? Plus, why wouldn't the Romans kindly point them to the correct tomb? Or the Jewish leaders, no, this is where he's buried. You went to the wrong place, ladies. Oops, sorry. And again, what about the resurrection appearances? This doesn't explain the resurrection appearances. This theory never got any traction. I know of no modern-day support for that theory. Number four. The hallucination theory. The hallucination theory. This theory says the resurrection appearances were mere hallucinations. 
They were so grief-stricken. This is just wish fulfillment. They so wanted Jesus to be risen from the dead, they imagined it in their minds. They hallucinated it all. What are the problems with this theory? Well, again, why wouldn't the Romans produce the body and end all the hallucinating? No, you didn't see him risen from the dead. Here, roll the tomb away. There, see, he's in there. Why wouldn't they do that? Plus, this theory doesn't fit the facts for Jesus' appearances to the disciples as a group or to the crowd of 500 at one time. I can have a hallucination, you can have a hallucination, you can have a hallucination, but we can't network our hallucinations. You know, we can't all say, oh man, I'm, close your eyes, yeah, are you seeing that? Yeah, me too. Uh, look to your right, oh yeah, I see it. It doesn't work that way. Hallucinations don't work like that, okay? Hallucinations are personal experiences. They're, uh, they're inter, they're, they're inside of ourselves, intramental, not extramental, they're, inter, they're within ourselves, okay? Um, plus, preconditioning is a major factor in hallucinations. You have to be preconditioned to, 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 to have this hallucination. This theory doesn't fit the facts regarding the state of mind of the disciples, um, because they were not expecting a resurrection. It doesn't, pre it doesn't fit the facts with James, Jesus' brother who was not a believer. Remember, James said he's out of his mind. But James, Jesus made a special resurrection appearance to James, who became a leader in the church, the leader of the Jerusalem church, actually, and wrote the letter of James in your Bible. That was Jesus' half-brother, who, when Jesus was alive, said, he's, my brother's out of his mind. So he wasn't preconditioned to believe in a, a resurrection, but he became a follower of, of Jesus because he saw Jesus risen from the dead. And it's really crazy because it doesn't explain the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, who was a Jewish member of the Sanhedrin, who, or I believe he was a Sanhedrin member, and he hated Christians. It was his job to go around finding Christ followers and killing them, and putting them in prison and killing them. And he literally, in one instant, went from a Christ killer, Christian killer, to a Christ follower. Why? Because he said, I saw the resurrected Jesus. Okay? None of those could be explained by hallucinations, because there's no preconditioning there. And by the way, when a person is having a hallucination involving a deceased person, you don't take that hallucination as a sign that person's alive. You take it as a confirmation that they're dead. You've had a, a vision of them after they've died. This theory was proposed in the early 20th century, but I'm not aware of any modern-day support amongst historians or scholars for this theory. Then number five, the swoon theory. The swoon theory. This is the theory that Jesus only fainted on the cross, and he resuscitated in the cool tomb, and he escaped. So what are the problems with this theory? Well, Let's follow it for a second. Remember, crucifixion, crucifixion was essentially death by asphyxiation. You, you, you suffocated to death. We looked at that last week and how that works. That's why they break the legs so you, you couldn't push up and breathe. You know, you'd be exhausted and you would finally just suffocate. But Jesus was whipped, beaten, 39 lashes at least, carried that wooden crossbeam through the city. He nailed to it. He hung there for six hours on that cross, stabbed in the side of the chest to ensure he was dead. Water and blood flowed out, which is a sign that the pericardium and the aorta has been pierced. We now realize that's what was a sign of the blood and water flowing out together. Jesus was pronounced dead by the Roman authorities. 
Remember, we made a point of that last week. When Pilate heard that Jesus was, you know, um, was Joseph of Arimathea asked, member of the Sanhedrin, asked if he could take the, the body of Jesus down. And Pilate was surprised that, is he dead already? Six hours, that's, that's unusual. To, they usually take longer to die than that. So he checked, and the Roman on the site, the, the gentleman who's overseeing the crucifixion, confirmed, yes, he's dead. By the way, as a Roman guard or person who uh, crucified people, if you let someone down off of that cross and they weren't dead, you would die. So they made sure that their, their uh, clients were dead. <laughs> the best word that could come to my mind at that moment. So, so Pilate insured. It, was a, it had the government seal, the, the death certificate from Pilate himself. Yes, he's dead. So we know Jesus was dead. There's, it's a historical fact that Jesus was dead. But let's just go with this theory for a moment. Let's imagine Jesus just swooned. He went into a, a catatonic state, into a sort of a coma on the cross. They just thought he was dead. They take him down. They wrap him. Uh, remember, with spices and so on. They're not seeing that he's breathing a bit. They're not feeling his pulse or heartbeat. They think he's dead. They put him in the tomb. They seal him in that tomb. Again, so he's wrapped, sort of mummified, okay? But the coolness of the tomb, the spices invigorate him. He wakes up. This is what the theory says. He wakes up. Somehow, with his whipped back and his beaten face and his nail-pierced hands and feet, he somehow unwraps himself like Houdini from this wrapping. He gets up. He folds the burial cloth, because he's very neat, apparently, because it says the burial cloth is folded. He folds it from inside the tomb with his beaten back and nail-pierced hands and feet. He moves the stone away from inside by himself. Without the guards seeing it, he sneaks out. He then appears to his disciples with his beaten body, and he says, I've raised, risen from the dead, and you too can have a body like this someday. And then he disappears, never to be seen again. Really? That's the swoon theory. I'm not aware of any contemporary New Testament scholars that subscribe to that theory. So, what's the state of the art? I always like to quote this one. It's not on your theory. But we had a, a, a gentleman here who makes this his living, debating atheists. And he told me personally that he was uh, uh, debating an individual who's, he was an atheist who did his doctorate on the resurrection. So this atheist did his doctorate on the resurrection, studying it and so on, um, from a, a skeptic's view. And in this debate, here is the state of the art when it comes to skeptical views. The view now is <laughs> that Jesus had a long-lost twin brother that was separated at birth. And so they were separated at birth. And he just happened to come back into Jerusalem during the time of the crucifixion. And he made appearances and kind of pretended that he was his brother Jesus and then disappeared again. Why you would want to pretend you're someone that the Romans just killed, I'm not sure. Um, but that is the state of the art. I don't know anyone else who believes that. But I think we're officially scraping the bottom of the barrel with that one. Folks, that's it. That's it. I'm not hiding anything from you. That's 2,000 years worth of skeptical, meaning non-supernatural theories. 
uh, Muslims will choose the swoon theory or the, their theory is it's not a, this is all naturalistic, meaning not involving supernatural. Muslims, because the Quran seems to teach that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. It was a Jesus impersonator. Allah put someone who looked identical to Jesus on the cross, and he was killed. But Jesus himself was taken up into heaven. Um, again, but if you believe that, then you've got to believe that Allah put the biggest hoax upon the world. In fact, the whole lie, according to Islam, that Jesus rose from the dead is blamed on Allah because he's the one who set it up. It just doesn't make sense. Um, plus, they're denying the one fact that is undeniable historically, that Jesus actually died. So that's a, that's a problem with our Islamic friends. All right, but, and that's it. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you've got to choose one of those theories and go with it. Good luck. All right, let's keep going. The women's, number five in your outline, the women's initial response. Look at verse eight. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is an odd statement, isn't it? This is how Mark ends, right there. Um, as your outline says, apparently the amazed mental emotional state that we learned about earlier was still in place when the women left the tomb. As initially, they said nothing to anyone. So remember, he said to them, don't be amazed. And we said that's like an intense emotional state because of perplexity and so on. So initially, they left just like in a daze. And they didn't say anything to anyone. But 5b, although this was their first reaction, it wore off quickly. So Mark's giving their first reaction, but it wore off quickly. We know that because we know that Jesus rose from the dead. And we also know from other gospels, they did go then and tell people, okay? So it, it wore off. But then the question becomes, and with this we're going to close, that's the end? Really? Like that's how Mark chose to end his gospel? It doesn't make sense, really, does it? For centuries, scholars have discussed why Mark's gospel ends the way that it ends. And these three represent the three major options suggested. Number one, Mark never got a chance to finish it due to an illness, arrest, or death. So he just never got a chance to finish it. And so the, what he did write was you know, spread out and spread around. But he never got a chance to finish. So we're reading an unfinished document, which is why somebody felt the need to add those verses 9 to 20 from other Gospels. Number two, Mark's original ending was lost before it was copied and reproduced. So again, that autograph manuscript somehow, you know, again, it could have been on a scroll rolled up and it was maybe on the outside of the scroll and somehow it got torn off or lost. But that last bit somehow got separated from the rest of it and it, before it got to be copied or reproduced. Or number three, this was Mark's creative stylistic choice forcing the reader to ponder how they will personally respond to the good news. The women were presented with this good news. He's risen, meet him in Jerusalem, meet him in Galilee, and then it just ends abruptly. Like Mark's gospel is very abrupt and fast-paced, and this was his stylistic choice. Might be odd, but it was Mark's in your face going, whoa, so wow, what? It ends like that? Yes, what are you going to do with this now yourself? What will you do with this information? And with that... The Gospel of Mark.
closes. Any questions about what we learned tonight? Yes. So, nine to twenty could have been a scribe, decades or centuries later, um, some well-meaning person who, again, they've cut and pasted from other gospels. It appears so they've they somebody feeling like this needs to end better, and so they. On, on lots of ancient manuscripts, I should say this, it wouldn't be unusual. There's stuff written in margins at times and so on. And over the years, um, what we found is stuff that started just a, a note in the margin gets copied by the next scribe, and then that kind of makes its way into the body. And um, that's why, again, when we look at all the manuscripts, we're able to weed that stuff out. So they have found that. Sometimes somebody writes something in the margin, and after a few copyists, one guy, all it takes is one person to move it from the margin into the body of the text, and then the next person thinks that's part of it, and it gets added. Again, we've been able to weed that stuff out, but it could have been that. Someone who could have simply started with saying, you know, and here's what we know happened afterwards, and that gets added as, as an addendum, as an appendix maybe, and then somehow eventually in the manuscript it got just enmeshed right into the rest of it. It would have been an innocent thing, certainly not malicious. Other questions? Yes, sir. How many different languages did they have in that part of the world? The three main languages in Palestine and modern-day Israel at that time would have been Aramaic, uh, Greek, and Latin. Many of them spoke, within the Jewish community would have been um, Aramaic, but they also, many spoke Greek as well. Because it would be like, Greek was as what, to them what English is today in the world. So if you were in the business community, you had to speak Greek. And so many of them would have spoken Greek. Good question. Other questions? Yes, sir. Taking on the form of women? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think if I can think of any women angels. I'm not sure of any in Scripture. Yeah, that'd be an interesting study. I'm not aware of any off the top of my head. Yeah, we are, is there genders in, in heaven? The body that you have now will be the same essential body that you'll have then, only it'll be turbocharged. So Jesus is called the first fruit of the resurrection. So he's the first one raised, and so um, it appears, so the Apostle Paul talks about this Corinthians, this mortal must put on immortality, this corruptible must put on incorruption. Um, and... Uh, the body you have now is likened to the seed, and the seed you put in the ground is not the plant that grows, but it's different, it's transformed. And so the body we have now is planted, and then at the resurrection, it's raised from the dead, immortal. But there is clearly a sense from Jesus that they, well, two things had happened. Clearly they recognized him. At times they didn't, but he prevented them from recognizing them a couple times. 
But they certainly recognized him as the Lord, and he maintained the scars, I think, as a badge of recognition. But um, I would say that it appears from everything I've read that the body you have now, it'll be a, a, a facsimile, a very similar in eternity, only it will be at a turbocharged state, meaning it'll be supernatural, meaning Jesus' body, he could eat fish with them, but he could also appear and disappear at will. And so there's a, it's a mortal-immortal hybrid, if you will, that we will have. Um, it appears that we will not be um, married or being given in marriage. Um, so th the whole sexual function, it appears, will not be the same. Uh, it says we'll be like the angels. Again, we talk, spoke on this. It doesn't say we will be angels. Angels are a completely different class of being from humans. But we'll be like the angels in that we will um, not be uh, having families and things like that. Now, that's not something to be disappointed about because... Whatever we have now, many of the needs that are met in my life through relationships with my wife and family and so on, they'll be met by our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. So it's not, we're not going to be up in heaven going, oh man, I miss the old days. You know, I thought it'd be better than this. You know, it's not going to be that. It's going to be wilder beyond our wildest dreams, but it's, it's, we're going to have similar bodies, but supernatural bodies. So, um, you know, will we still have uh, sexual organs and genitalia and so on? I don't know. Scripture doesn't say about that, but it simply implies, it seems to imply that we will not function sexually like we do now. Might be too much information for some of you. <laughs> but those are questions people want to know. Other questions? Thank you, Simon. Next series is going to start in September, and we're going to, I'm going to do a series on the doctrine of salvation. So, what does it mean to be saved? How does Jesus dying help me? How does someone dying 2,000 years ago, raising from the dead, how does that help me? And what is salvation? What, what's the role of the Father in salvation, the role of the Son, the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation? Um, can you lose your salvation? Um, what does the atonement mean? Um, wh what's the whole purpose of shed blood and, and those kind of things? And what's the difference that the Spirit makes in my life? How does that actually work? H how does the, the power of Christ in me, how is that experienced? All of that. It's going to be a 15-week course. I was going to do seven weeks, and then I took a study week and went over, and, and it turned into 15 weeks. So I better not do any more study weeks. It'll be another 31-weeker. But... We're going to start in September, and it's going to go from 15 weeks from there, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm working on it now, and I'll work on it quite a bit over the summer, but I'm looking forward to it. Hmm? It will be Thursday nights live in Poco, at our Poco campus, but we are going to um, show it on video on here Wednesday nights and Sundays. I'm going to make, give those options, okay? So you'll be able to, if you want to participate live, it'll be Thursday nights at our Poco campus. Um, if you want to, but otherwise you can watch it online for free anytime you want. You can watch it with groups around tables on Wednesday nights or Sunday during our one of our three morning services at our Vancouver campus. So you'll have one, two, three, four, 
five, six options. Yes. To get the uh, completed outline? Absolutely. If you uh, simply uh, email me or, or Susie Javadan, or they're all online, completed? Yeah, she's talking about completed. Yes, yes. So the, the, they're online at our at our church website. They're online with the blanks, and then you just have to fill. Pardon? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Having said that, I'm willing to send you the completed outline if you ask. Happy to do that. Ignore your son. He's naughty. God bless you folks. Thank you for sticking through us with this. It's been a joy to do this. God bless you.